1: Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today's guest is not only one of my very best friends, he is one of my very favorite recording artists on earth. It's none other than the incredible Jack Garrett. He has a brand new album out now called Love, Death, and Dancing, and today we're going to talk about how he came to create both the album and the visual film that accompanies it how and why he started making music in the first place, who some of his inspirations are, how he grew up training his ear, the hiatus that he took from music to examine mental health, and how he prioritizes real, vulnerable, and substantive conversations around mental health today. There is so much to enjoy in this episode. See you on the other side. This is a time for great introspection, for examination of language and how we spend our privilege and all of these things we're talking about. And and yet it's it's the both and we do have to figure out how as individuals to find some purpose, to take care of ourselves, to mitigate, you know, the stress on mental health and, and so on and so forth. So yep. what are you doing? For you in the midst of widening your perspective you know are are you writing music do you find that you're playing more music are you are you having trouble focusing I mean where 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 do you kind of find yourself now this this many weeks into this thing
0: my my issue at the moment is I'm so deep in the world of promoting an album I'm finding it hard to mm. I'm finding it hard to like take stock of the rest of what I could be doing Like so much of it. I love my job. I love everything about my job. Like I, I love, I love everything about my job so much. So I am annoying to work with because I want to be involved with every part of what my job touches, whether that's, you know, writing the song and then producing the song through mixing it and mastering it to how it's packaged, how it's marketed, the design of everything that goes around it. I, I want to, and should be, I believe involved in every single moment of that, of of those decisions. Um, and again, it makes me annoying to work with because I am I'm very picky about about the things I like. I'm very good. I always say I'm very good at noticing what I don't like. I'm not very good at knowing what I do like until I see it. And but, but that helps me make the right decisions, I think, is if something if I'm presented with something, I can go, I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. The rest of it is great. So let's keep that and let's change the other bits. So, you know, I've got to be better at at doing that because that makes me a pain to work with. But but what it's leading to me to is this, is my brain is so enwrapped in that way of thinking, it's finding it hard to... It's finding it hard to create. Yeah, I think, I mean, like... I've been desperate to get up into this room which is like where I am right now is I'm in my studio at home which is just a bedroom at the top of my this house I'm renting in London and I've got all of my toys in there and if you know I don't know if anyone who's listening has seen any of the like shows or streams I've been doing it's, it's the room in which I sit uh, in those is exactly where I am right now so I'm surrounded by toys and things that make noise and I find it hard to at the moment I find it hard to ride the wave that will get me to the shore of an idea. Like it's 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 kind of tough because I'm on one hand thinking about promoting a record. So I'm in quite like a, a clinical way of thinking and I'm thinking about, you know, promotional things. But then at the same time, I'm also performing these songs for radio shows and, you know, uh, ch- um tuning into facebook streams for like i already said like radio stations in america and at the same time i'm doing phone interviews and all that kind of stuff i'm in i'm in like i'm in i'm in business mode and i really enjoy that cuz i only get to do it when i'm putting an album out or when i'm putting new music out and I thrive in this place. I enjoy this place. I get to be a version of myself that I find quite interesting because it's so not like who I am usually. Mm-hmm. I get to use all the decisiveness that I'm usually so bad at doing. I'm I'm my harshest critic and I'm the worst person to make a decision about anything because I overthink. When I'm in this mode, that guy just disappears. I don't know. I'd, I need to be better at being able to have that version of myself coexist with the more creative versions of myself because I think... I think that decisive part of who I am could be really important in my creativity but he just he's not there when I'm creating he's he's somewhere else which which again this this Venn diagram thing this Schrodinger's box this I'm everything and none of them all at once kind of thing I I need that part of me to be there to make decisions but I don't need him there if what he's going to do is overthink the decisions that he's making and that guy so that business guy is great when I need him to be there like right now not in this conversation because I'm with a friend and I'm talking about fun stuff. It's easy for him to just take a break but like when I'm when I'm in a meeting with my label that that's that's who I am in that moment and he and like I said he makes decisions and he thinks about things and 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 he seems to know what he's talking about which is very much not like who I am when I'm in creating something I don't want him to be there all the time because otherwise I'm going to be making music from a business perspective or from a from a clinical perspective. But then again, the other question is, can he be there a bit? Is that gonna help me make good decisions quickly? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's weird. But 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 everything that I've said is is relevant to just my creative experience, regardless or not as to whether I'm like stuck inside because of a pandemic. I think actually I've been my, my brain's been quite good at disassociating from like what's going on ten feet outside on the pavement and just allowing me to kind of exist in this room and 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 work when I need to. Hmm. I
1: wonder if for people like us who do spend so much time on the road for work. And I mean, I feel like I'm always gone and and you and your touring are quite literally in a different city every day or every other day. Yeah. Do you think that maybe some of what might be good for, for creatives about this being at home is, is the ability to nest a bit to, you know you've been able to as you mentioned set up your studio you know you've got all these noisemakers that you've collected yeah. that that now have this place and you can work you know i again in trying to find some elements of lightness in in this dark time i've really tried to practice a lot of gratitude for the ability to be at home and work from home and not be on a plane every 4 days yeah yeah, yeah. you know um, and I, I wonder, as this all continues, I wonder what, I wonder what might get made out of, out of that space.
0: Yeah, something my manager said the other day that really made me kind of take stock and think. Um, it was uh, Izzy said, um, when I was talking to him the other day, he, he was saying, everyone's going to have a comeback show after this.
2: Hmm.
0: Every, every single musician, every single one of them, there is not a single musician who isn't going to have that moment when they play their first show again. Right? Every single musician on the planet who is touring and, and doing all that kind of stuff, when they do their first show, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be their first show back. And I. That's the, that's the thing that kind of that's, that's where I, that hits me where I live. Cause I nest anyway, when I'm writing, cause I have to, cause I'm on my own when I'm doing it. So, so me like, and that's what I mean about like those 10 feet from where I am in here to where the pavement is. I've, I've been able to put up a barrier there for so long. Anyway, the, that that's kind of no different for me now. Be, me being in here, my, my issues are still the same. My, my either lack of or um, overwhelming amount of creativity is still something I'm, it's a, you know, a lion I'm constantly trying to tame. But the thing that I'm so interested about is like how, 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 how to react when I do that first show, when I walk out on that first stage. Do I reference it? Should I? Is that the point? Do we want to be reminded, or do, do do we just want to live in the moment of the show? Like you know, from the shows that I do, I have this, I have this unspoken contract with my audience where I refuse to let them leave uh, unless they're as tired as I am, and as tired and as stressed as I am. Like I still want that feeling to be the same. I don't. I don't want. I don't want this to have affected. I don't want this to affect that moment so much so that it becomes the reason why we have that moment. It's going to be the reason we have that moment anyway. I just want to know the first time I do a show, that, that I want to know that's why we're all there. It's still, we're there for the show. Mm. We're there for the live music. I don't, I, I, I yeah.
1: Well, it's interesting because again, it's a simultaneous truth. That first show back for all of us will be a reclamation and it will also be a welcome departure.
0: Right, sure. <laughs> it's
1: both and. You know, we want we want the departure from this reality and we want to reclaim our group experience, the catharsis, the, the, you know, to your point the the overwhelmingly fun exhaustion you feel at the end of a great show because you've been shouting and dancing and sweating and, you know, um, that's going to be such an interesting thing to to get back. Yeah. And it makes me think, you know, when when you talk about the relationship that you have to your audience and the way that you perform, you do, you put everything out on the stage. And because you are the only one playing, you know, I think there's so many people who hear your records and think like, wow, that guy's, I wonder who's in his band. And I always laugh because I'm like, hello, it's just him. <laughs> you know, you, you are this savant you know, mad, freaky genius, prodigy—these are words I used to describe you. I know you're turning red. I don't care, I, I listeners. With he's every turning red. He doesn't. I like disagree it. with
0: every single one of them. Well, None of them I know true. that
1: I'm right, and well, I'm not here to have a debate with you about it.
0: That's but... not helpful for a podcast.
1: <laughs> but the, you know, the amazing thing about watching you do what you do is is that you do all of it, and and you have such an incredible. I think about your brain a a bit like a library (laughs) of like many records and sounds. And it's, it's awesome. And I've seen you play so many different kinds of shows and so many different kinds of music. And, and I'm curious, you know, because obviously we've, we've taken a leap off the high dive into where we are today. But Hmm. one of the things I like to do with people is, is go back And Uh I I know, I know many things about your childhood because you're one of my best friends, but for the audience, we'll go back to some things I already know, which is where did you grow up? Who's in your family? And then I want to get into when you first picked up a musical instrument and why. So let's walk walk us, walk us down memory lane a little bit. (laughs)
0: Well, I mean, I grew up. I grew up as the as the youngest member of a family of five, including my mum and dad, my brother, and my sister. Yes, yeah, so the the youngest of three. My sister was the oldest. My brother um, was there in the middle. All of us musical.
1: How Not come? like,
0: uh, it was inevitable and inescapable. Um my my mum, uh my mum was a firm believer that the a firm believer that we all should and must take piano lessons when we were kids, which we all did, and then when we were old enough to, we were able to learn an instrument of our own choosing, and that's because we all showed in you know an innate wanting to to play music in some sort of way. I think it's 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 very much something that is in the DNA of of our family and going back even further definitely both on my dad's side and on my mum's side so like my my dad taught himself to play guitar when he was about i don't know like 17 18 and though he doesn't come from a an obviously musical family. There's music in in that family, right? Uh, music appreciation and and uh, and an understanding of music. Um, my mum's side was a very overtly musical family. My 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 grandfather, who I never met, was a church organist um, and a travelling salesman. And my grandma um, sung in the in the church choir that my my grandfather played the organ in, and you know. So my mum grew up the youngest of. Um, I think she got yeah um, three brothers. Um, no, not the youngest. Sorry, she was the uh, second youngest. But she grew up, and they all had the same kind of thing. You know, music is very important, but hers was a was a secular music upbringing. So music was mm. was was secular. It was it was a it was a type of of praise, mm. which is a very different thing to talk about. Secular music and especially like religious music, Christian music, is a very different thing in the UK than it would have been to what I think you would be. Assuming, or the image you would be conjuring in your head um, in in America, I think it's a very, very different thing. Like, for example, like I said, my my grandfather was like the church organist of the local parish, and you know, all of those words when I say them with a little bit of British uh, in my voice, uh, it kind of paints the picture a little bit more. Um, you know, think cobbled streets and uh, mown grass, and I, I mean gaslights, But she's not that old. But the, <laughs> the, but like, but 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 the point being is that like music is in the in in my blood. It absolutely is. Um, and when I was a kid, uh, like I said, my my mum, as she did with my brother and my sister, I had to get piano lessons. I hated mm. them. I didn't enjoy my piano lessons because my piano teacher. My piano teacher forced me, as any good piano teacher should do, forced me to um, learn the pieces that we were playing by using my eyes and my hands, whereas I just wanted to use my ears all the time. So the Mm -hmm. beginning of the, the beginning of a piece that we would spend the next few weeks learning, she would play it for me. My ears would remember everything that she played and I would sit down and I would start to find the notes rather than read the music. I would just let my fingers tinkle around the keyboard until I found the notes of the piece that she just played to me. And that's not what that's not what piano playing is. That's just, you know, that's guesswork, essentially. But but my ears were desperate to do that. They were trying to figure figure music out. They were trying to find a way to get my, you know, my ears were trying to find a way to get my brain to talk to my hands. And what my piano teacher did is she would put um, books over my hands so I couldn't look at them. So I had to look at the music instead of looking at my hands and trying to guess the notes and all that kind of stuff. And I hated it because I was like, this is just easier. If you just if you just took the book away, I could learn this piece really quickly. Mm. But that's not the point, you know, because so much of what my music upbringing has taught me is is an appreciation for the discipline of it. And her doing that was encouraging me to be more of a disciplinarian on myself when it came to music to not take the easy route but to take the challenging route not because it's right but because it's challenging um obviously my brain my ears wanted the challenge of something and she just offered it to me in a different way but yeah and then when i was like 11 i i i picked up the trombone that was the that was the second instrument i officially like got lessons in and started to play but that whole time doing lessons in piano and trombone and stuff i was uh surrounded by musical instruments at home and I just picked all of them up and tried to play all of them. Mm. Yeah.
1: Why do you think you went for the trombone second?
0: Because it was abrasive and loud and funny to look at. Literally that's the reason. I like really? we got yeah, my so it was it, so that was the whole point is it was all it was it was around that age it was always like 10 or 11 we could then choose to play our own instr- uh, choose to play our own instrument choose another instrument to learn how to play to get like lessons in so my brother sorry my my sister who was the eldest uh, chose the flute my brother chose the cello i chose the trombone i mean for any i guess like for any music nerds i'm absolutely a uh, a brass ensemble member. Like if you were to just look at me and you know anything about my personality, I I suit the brass very well. It was either going to be brass or percussion. Um, I was never going to have a violin in my hands, although I did try that for a bit and just didn't get on with it. But the I don't know, the trombone just seemed to make sense to me. Um, something about the visualization of it. With a trombone, there's no fixed there's no fixed positions like there are on a trumpet or on a um, I mean on um, a, any other standard member of the brass family. Like trumpets have valves, uh, French horns have valves, uh, tubers have valves. They've all got keys essentially that you press down and the combination of keys that you press produce a certain note. The trombone has a slide. Mm. It's guesswork if you don't know what you're doing. The visualisation of it made sense to me. It reminded me of a, of a fret of a guitar. You know, on, it, it, depending on the shape of your mouth um, or the, what's called your embouchure, you can change the range of the trombone. So on the lowest range, for me, that was just like the lowest E string. And every position on the trombone was a different fret. I, yeah. It just made sense to me. The guitar was an instrument I already knew at that point. I'd already kind of worked my way around it. But this but this is the thing is that like I'm over-explaining something that was instinctive and instantaneous. Um, the decision to pick the trombone was because it visually made sense. I didn't sit there as an 11-year-old and go, oh, well, it kind of reminds me of the guitar. But if I was to think <laughs> about it now, that's probably one of the main reasons why subconsciously I went for it.
1: All right. Okay, smart. So you... You started on the piano, you picked up the guitar on your own,
2: mm-hmm. yes, uh, yes.
1: got quite good at that and then used your second, the, the, the blessing of your second allocation. lesson, yeah. allocation, <laughs> got to got to got to love Prize. that, love an allocation, yeah.
2: so yeah,
1: knowing some of your musical taste in the way that I do, I'm curious, do you also think the trombone, I understand how it technically made sense to you? In in the way that in hindsight you realized that it felt similar to the guitar. But do you think that you also loved it, that that you love brass because of the music you grew up listening to? I think
0: there was something in that as well. I I I I I I, I can I can respond to that by saying that like what every instrument I learn taught me to do was it learned me to think it sorry it learned me it taught me to think about music from a different perspective every single time so you know the 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 job of a brass player no matter what a band or orchestra or ensemble they're in is different to that of any other instrument and it's the same with the guitar it's the same with the piano you know i i never for example when i i taught myself to play the guitar because we had guitars around the house and i and i saw people playing the guitar and my brain went that makes sense pick it up pretend like you know what you're doing the rest will come and that's that is essentially what happened but like for me there's a huge difference as there should be between the bass guitar and an electric guitar as much as there's a difference between the electric guitar and an acoustic guitar they're all they're all entirely different instruments they're not the same thing just because they are shaped the same or the the science of them is similar and and, and I, I don't think I ever really encouraged myself to think like that. I think I just always did think like that. I I taught myself to play instruments, like I said, by literally mirroring or mimicking that of people who played those instruments first. So I taught myself to play guitar by watching videos of Stevie Ray Vaughan, who is, in my opinion, the greatest guitarist that ever lived, who died tragically too young in a helicopter crash a couple of years before I was born in, I think, 89 or 90. And the, he, he played the guitar like no one else I'd ever seen, like no one else I'd ever seen. My dad had an old video, a VHS video um, for you kids out there. Uh, He had a VHS (laughs) of a, a really, like a really famous show of Steve Ray Vaughan's. It's called Steve Ray Vaughan live at the Elma Combo theater. And this is like widely regarded as one of the, one of the pinnacle examples of how to play the blues guitar. Like Stevie might've been 25, 26 in this video. Here is this, essentially this kid playing the blues and not slow blues, not like, like not Delta blues, like playing Texas rock blues. Like, like no one had ever played it before. and, it, like I said, it's widely renowned as being one of the greatest examples of guitar playing and blues playing in, in in musical history. For the band that were playing with him that night, they've been quoted as saying that was just another show for him. That's just that's the level at which he played always.
2: Mm.
0: I don't know. I think when I was a kid, I was so infatuated with these stories and with the, with, with the different characters that you could be behind an instrument. That seemed to be the thing that drove me the most. No two instruments are the same. And and you Mm. shouldn't be the same if you're playing a different instrument. I think I think that makes sense. Mm. I also don't remember what your question was.
1: Well, and maybe that's why. (laughs) That's the whole point. It's just we go where we go. (laughs) Maybe that's also why you love every piece of the puzzle of your music in the way you do, and you play them all because every piece is is a piece of you. It's. You, yeah. you, you paint the whole picture, yeah. which is very interesting. So I, I am curious, so you grew up listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan and, and who else? What do you think now, when you look back at your childhood, what are the bands that come to mind or, or well, the songs yeah. that jump out? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I I always go back to um i mean like stevie wonder taught me how to write songs um obviously he didn't know that's what he was doing but he taught me he taught me how to write songs yeah i i mean music was evidently everywhere in the house but it wasn't always being played you know like we, we weren't the kind of musical house where there was constantly music on the on the on the radio or my dad wasn't always playing CDs but but, but he usually was but silence was just as important and discovery was just as important. like my mum and dad never sat me down like dad never sat me down and went boy, I'm gonna play you Steve Ray Vaughan and you're gonna like him Like my dad just <laughs> my dad just played Steve Ray Vaughan and I saw the absolute adoration in his eyes and it made me want to it made me want to love the thing my dad loved. It was just Mm. then very easy to love it because it was incredible. And it's the same with like my mum who would play Stevie Wonder on the piano and we would listen to songs in the key of life. And that's, that's an incredibly, it's like songs in the key of life was one of the first albums I heard that changed my perception of what pop music could be. Right. Here's this album. When I listened to it, I was a child, but here's this album that is politically charged, um, socially charged, economically charged, And it's, and it's, it's a hit factory, right? Here's, here is, here is a, here's a double LP by one of the, one of the most undeniably brilliant musicians. Um, But like, but his, 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 yeah, here's a double LP of, 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 of the purest just enjoyment on on record i can't get over how good that album is and i was and i was a kid and i remember listening to it and i remember obviously not understanding what i was listening to but just knowing that what i was listening to was irrefutably good I didn't have I didn't have the I didn't have the context of what great was at the age that I listened to it. I must have been six. I don't know, younger than that even. But like, I just knew it was I knew it was good. I knew the melodies immediately. Um, I didn't know that that's what made them good. I just knew I knew those melodies immediately. You know, and it, the the amazing thing was the reason why I bring up like Steve Rayvorn, particularly Steve Ravon, Stevie Wonder, also like Paul Simon, David Bowie, is that th- those were all. I'm very yeah, I'm very aware I listed off a, a a a lot of men there and I'm gonna I'm gonna get there in a minute as to as to why like they all represented the people I wanted to be as an artist.
2: Mm.
0: Right? And I because because they all at the core of what they did made and I'm gonna use this term, pop music. Steve Ray Vaughan played the blues when pop was when when the blues was popular and it was charting, right? Stevie Wonder made funk and soul music. He didn't make pop music, but it but it char- like it was popular enough that it made turned him into a a, a global sensation. Right? Well, you age of you're
1: meaning pop as in the most popular of its era, not pop music like that we understand pop to be today. Exactly,
0: but not mine, the genre.
1: The 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 size of the experience.
0: But to link it back to what we've been talking about this conversation so far, when it's 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 a both and. Yeah, it's both and like it, it, like pop music in terms of the the word popular. It it, it unquestionably is like uh, David Bowie's album. Let's dance was, was, was panned when it came out because it was so obviously a pop record and critics were like, like, what's David Bowie doing? Well, what he was doing was making some of the most interesting and some of the most interesting and challenging intricately put together pop music that the world had ever heard and to do that he enlisted the talents of Niall Rogers to play guitar and to produce the record and also he brought in the talents of a young blues guitarist who we might have already talked about Steve Ray Vaughan who played the guitar solos on that record right wow. and like and I I, I just can't I could never go back and, and, and look at any of the re- reviews for that record, A, because it's not helpful and no one remembers the reviews, everyone remembers the album. But, but there would be no need to, no point to, because I understand why it was panned, because it was easy to pan it. But it's, it, it's way more difficult and it's way more interesting to appreciate it for its nuances and for its intricacies. Mm. And all of the artists that I've listed did that. What they then enabled me to do was when I was in a, 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 a huge like discovery period of my young adolescence, like 13, 14, they opened the doors for me to then listen to a huge, wide, varying amount of styles and genres of music. But they made me want to listen to people who made me feel the same way, which was, well, hang on, this is a hook, but there's so much more to it. Like mm-hmm. Imogen Heap is a huge, uh, Imogen Heap like taught me how to think about pop music in a way that I, I still don't know if I'll ever be able to to think about music in the way that she did. When I first heard Hide and, Hide and Seek, which is a very popular song, it is, it is, it is so much more than that i remember the first time i heard that song absolutely it was because of that famous scene from the oc but the first time that i heard hide and seek by Imogen heap i my heart broke and i was Mm -hmm. like i said 13 14 maybe when i heard that song for the first time i i did not know and probably a bit older but anyway i didn't know how to i just didn't know how to fathom. i i could not understand someone could think about that as an idea it's such Mm -hmm. a simple melody it's such a simple hook But the production of it, the science behind it, the technology, I'm speechless. I'm still flummoxed by how brilliant that song is. Everything about it, right? Every layer of that song is brilliant. Her performance, her writing, the production, the mix of it, the master of it, its placement on her album. Everything about that is so well thought. and. I don't know. I just think every artist I've ever looked up to and wanted to be similar to, I think has looked at music in the same way that I found myself doing it, which was if you think about, if you don't think about all the details, you're not servicing the song. Mm -hmm. And I just, that's just rung true with me ever since. Every musician I fall in love with, I hear the details in what they're doing. Um, Whether it's Prince, whether it's uh, Ethan Gruska, whether it's, um, Uh, um, um, St. Vincent, whether it's uh, like newer artists like uh, Lapsley, who I absolutely adore, whether it's Little Sims, who's another British artist who I absolutely adore, like people who just obviously care about the detail of the art that they make. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
0: That's what, that's what lights my fire. That's what gets me going.
1: Mm. So when do you think you realized music was the thing that you wanted to do? It wasn't just a hobby. It wasn't just in the house, but it was what you wanted to do with your life
0: there's a strange difference there between what I think when did, when did I realize that it was what I had to do? Um, because, because I think it was always what I was going to do. I went to uni to study teaching. Both my parents are teachers or were at some point. My dad was a policeman for the majority of his career. My mum was a, a music teacher. So teaching is in my blood as much as music is. And I went to university to study uh, primary school education specializing in music, so I was, you know, essentially uh, sewing together a little safety net of, um, well, you know, if the music thing doesn't work out, I'll go and I'll teach primary school kids music. Um, I'd taken a gap year and I'd uh, been a teaching assistant at a primary school. I had the I, I had the experience and I knew it was something I could do. And then I went to uni to study how to do it. And the minute I started doing that, my entire body went. What are you doing like why give yourself a safety net and um. the argument the argument was always, well, you know just in case it goes wrong, and the voice in my head that was screaming at me would go, "Why are you allowing it to go wrong? Why are you allowing yourself to need a safety net don 't do this, go, go run, chase the thing that you want to do don 't let yourself have an opportunity to fail don 't even think about that that 's not that 's not a factor that 's not going like that 's not going to happen." I remember after a term, I called up my sister and I said, I'm, I think I have to go home and tell mum and dad I can't do this. I, it, I'd, done, I'd done a term out of my first year. I said, I just can't. I can't do this. And it it was. It, she was able to hear how serious I was. And I'm not usually like that with her. And she was able to hear it and and she was the one who kind of instilled the courage in me to go home and see my mum and dad and, you know, do the thing that neither my brother or sister had done. Because I've spent a lot of my childhood as well kind of feeling like I lived in their shadow um, for other reasons. But to know I had her support and to to know I was, you know, I was going to do something that... uh, which my mum and dad never experienced before, which was have one of their children come home from university and go, this isn't for me. I think I need to go and do this other thing instead. And the, the support that they showed me is still there to this day. They gave me, you know, mm. as any good parent should do, I think in that situation, they gave me an ultimatum and they said, yes, absolutely do it. We'll support you as much as we can, but we need to see that this is going to work for you. Right. And I think dad said, I think dad gave me like six months. He was like six months. You can stay at home. Absolutely. After that, you need to figure out what you're doing. And two months later, I moved into London and was making music and making, earning a living. Um, I was earning a living, um, making fake versions of songs that a advertising company couldn't pay the licenses for, um, for their online adverts. Yep. No, I was everything that I disagree with in the music industry for about eight months because it paid so well. Yeah, but that's like, so there was never a point where I was like, I know I'm going to be a musician. I just, there was more a point that was saying, you don't want to do anything but that.
1: Mm. So I'm I'm really curious because the voice that says, don't you dare give yourself a safety net. Mm -hmm. Do what you love, pursue it. Yeah. You know, it's very Bukowski, right? It's like find what you love and sure. let it kill you. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, this will
1: be yeah, your yeah. only option. Oh my god. Oh my god but literally. that you know <laughs> the, and, and obviously I don't mean literally, I I want everyone no, I know, to I be alive that. and thrive. But yeah. <laughs> that voice strikes me as determined, as confident. And one of the things that I'm so deeply grateful for about our friendship, and the list is very long, is that you and I as artists and sensitive people have a real ability to rest in our friendship and talk about our anxiety. Yeah. And you you are also having a really important public conversation about anxiety
2: yeah.
1: and about mental health. And I'm I'm curious how those voices live together because there is a ferocious confidence in saying, I'm going to go toward that, which I love. Yeah. And, and there's the other thing. And so when did, did the anxiety come later or, or did the confidence and the anxiety, the kind of passion and, and the pain, did they coexist always?
0: I, it, it, they manifested in different, in, in different ways as I got older, uh, I, the amount of confidence I needed to be able to make a decision like that. You're absolutely right. Is, 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 uh, very much like that of the confidence of a young white man. Like I, I was un <laughs> I, I was just uh, giving
1: you some poetry slam snaps, I mean, but,
0: but, like, but, but it absolutely was. I, I like there, I, there I was at a, at a great university, um, studying for a, uh studying for a job that i have the utmost respect for uh, which is teaching and and i was going no i'm going to be a musician like there's nothing that uh, there, there there was nothing that would suggest that it would work for me right that that decision was was the right one to make however there was no voice at that time in my head that was saying don't do this you're not good enough there was nothing there was no voice in my head that was saying that that voice came later now that voice has been with me for a very long time that voice that tells me I'm not good enough has been with me since I was a child it has it has found its way into the forefront of my decision making as I've turned into an adult and also as I have started to have my decisions be be dissected in front of me in real time Mm. I have a very strange relationship with with my industry, I also have a very strange relationship with um, with uh, with the critical response to my work. Not because I don't want to hear like bad reviews or anything, because I fundamentally believe that for art to exist, it needs to exist freely, and criticism of art is just as important as the creation of it. Mm the problem that i went through is i i was under a certain level of scrutiny that i think stunted certain parts of my growth not only as a musician and as an artist but also as a man so that voice definitely came later but it was you know as we've been talking about this whole time it's always been there with me like it it it, it both came suddenly and had been gradually growing over time i i grew up in a house that was very i i, I have no I have no obvious memory of ever being told not to express my emotions. You know, I don't think I don't think I was ever explicitly encouraged to either, but there's been there was no point in my childhood, for example, where I feel like my emotional my emotional growth, my, my emotional growth was stunted by, you know, my family or anything like that. I, I came from a place where discussion and debate was important and we all talked a lot. So I know I always had the freedom to feel which also makes me take more seriously the way that I feel now, because it wasn't the hate I I have for myself hasn't come from um, tragedy. It's been in me for a long time and it's, and it's grown and I've allowed it to, and I fed it, you know, but that's really, it is really interesting to think about it like that because I've never actually thought about it like that before. I get asked a lot, similar questions like that about whether you know my anxieties did they come with the career or what triggers them Uh, and and my response has always been they've been with me for a long time but i don't think i've ever quite taken seriously the fact that they have they have lived inside of me for as long as they have done and that and that there have been moments of absolute confidence in my life where they have stayed quiet and allowed they've allowed me to make some decisions and then not allowed me to make others um but but they do they that voice is louder as i'm getting older like much louder.
1: Hmm. Do you find then that music is a way for you to exercise those demons a bit to, to, to quite literally let those feelings out of your body, you know, or, or does creating and making something also just happen alongside the feelings? Is it a, is it a processing mechanism or something else?
0: I honestly don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly, I honestly don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I, I've been, I've been, I've been challenged, uh, words, right? I've <laughs> been... But I've been I've been challenging this part of myself quite um, quite arrogantly over the last like year, and and really trying to look at myself in that sort of a way.
1: Why um, do you call that arrogant?
0: Well, because because a I'm doing it for me, and and B, and I'm not doing it for anyone else. But also, I'm 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 doing it possibly in spite of possibly doing it in spite of myself. I don't know. It's it's a very I think self-criticism is so important. I think I think self-awareness is so important. It's something I take quite a lot of pride in. Actually, is being mm-hmm. like a, a self-aware person, and something that other people have complimented me for. Like I remember being in 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 meetings with my um, being in in meetings with like the the head of uh, my record label or the, the record label I'm signed with in America. The I'm signed to Ireland in, in America and the, the head of Ireland in, in the U.S. is a, is a guy called um, Darkus and I've known him for years. He signed me in the U.K. and then he moved to head up um, the U.S. office of the same record label and then he signed me out there as well. But I remember when I went to, out, out to America last year to meet him um, and just like catch up with him and stuff. He he point blank says it to me. There is there is no one in the industry, There's no one. there's no other artist that he knows who is as self-aware as I am. And he knows a lot of people, and I take it as a compliment. I think it's such a necessary part of my creativity, but what it what it does allow me to do is it it allows me too much space to be it allows too much freedom to that part of me, which is something I try and disassociate from by you know giving it giving it um the sort of terminology as in to reference it as another person or another part of me like I give it a lot of power I hand over a lot of power to it. I think the reason I call it arrogant is because I know I'm giving it that power and then I'm also choosing to fight that power. It's, but it's my decision. I'm the one who's doing it. No one else is doing it.
1: I mean, sure. <laughs> but it's also part of you. It's also part of your brain chemistry. It's it's part of your neurological wiring. It's part of your humanity. And, and I would wager that being self-aware, being, being sensitive means you you're sensitive to a lot of things. And if you're self-aware, then you understand what you're sensitive to in yourself. And, and I think there's a lot of people who don't do the work there who then are moving around in the world, like battering rams, you know, people who have experienced a lot of pain and haven't done the work to get clear on it or process it, who then are just putting that pain onto other people. You know, there's, there's a lot of i think negative risk to not looking inward so i don't know i i love people who are willing to do it and and who do it courageously and honestly i i was asked by someone that i love a lot recently We were having a big, sort of shocker, deep esoteric conversation about life. (laughs) Weird. Well, with Sophia Bush,
2: I I have no no, idea. Not possibly.
1: I mean, we've never done that. (laughs) Uh, Couldn't couldn't possibly. Um, And I was asked. We were talking about. It was like a two-sided question, one of those school of life things, and it was, um, "What's the worst thing that's ever been done to you?" And what's the worst thing you've ever done? And is, that was like, like,
0: is that like, would, would you rather fight, uh, what is it, one giant horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses?
1: Exactly. It's not, 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 it's like, not that kind of
0: question, I mean, different.
1: <laughs> I mean, I honestly, I would just like to have a hundred duck-sized horses. That would be my true, it would be my, my little pony dream come true. But uh. um, but the thing that I realized was the answer to the second part of the question was, look, there's some people who love me who would say, I what worst thing? Like you're a great friend, you're a great ally. There's people who don't love me who'd probably list various things that, that to them would answer the question. But what I realized was for me, the worst thing I've ever done is when as a coping mechanism for not quite knowing how to handle something that's happening, that is not okay. Or as a people pleasing mechanism, when I don't want to hurt someone's feelings by telling them what my truth is Hmm. the worst thing I've ever done is when I've turned my back on myself when I've known what I needed when I've known what the right course of action is even if it's going to be painful and I haven't done it to try to keep the peace I haven't done it to try to be a good soldier or a good coworker or whatever. When I have turned my back on myself, then every decision that's come from that turning away has been bad.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, it, it's a, it's a domino yeah. effect. Yeah, yeah, so the yeah, root yeah. for me is when I turn my back on myself and, yeah. and, a, and a couple of years ago, I finally had to say, I'm never going to do that again. I'm just not from yeah. here on out. This is going to be different and and I share that with you and everyone listening at home. <laughs> I, I forget that that's happening sometimes, but here we are, <laughs> Vulnerability Hour. Um, I I share that only to say that I I deeply do not believe it's arrogant to search within yourself to seek the truth inside yourself to know yourself well enough that you are so clear so aware as you put it about yeah. who you are and and how you've come to be that you look at yourself you know looking looking yourself in the eye rather than turning your back on yourself means that that the decisions you will make and the way you move in the world will be done so with honor and integrity and and so mm-hmm. as a friend who loves you i i would challenge this idea this sort of you know British tendency of self-deprecation that you have in spades, which is so fun. I don't
0: don't possibly know what
1: you're talking about. You have like you have the best sense of humor, and it's fun at the pub. But in but in these deeper moments, I, I would I would love for you to view that quest and that willingness to examine yourself as something really honorable rather than arrogant.
0: Yeah, I think it's an incredibly fair point. I think it's something I don't give myself enough. I don't, I don't treat myself with enough patience to be able to think about it like that every now and then.
2: But that's what I'm here for. I know that's literally (laughs) what you're
0: here for. No, I know. It's it's fair. That's fair. That's in our friend contract that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I know. I, yeah.
1: We should probably tell the people because I realized we did this on our, on our Instagram live on. um, We did on album release day, but we haven't done it on the podcast. (laughs) And I'm sure there's all these people being like, wow, these two like really love each other. Wonder how they got to be best friends. It's
0: like, yeah, we Um, met yesterday.
1: Yeah, no, it's fine. (laughs) Um, So we've been friends for over, just over five years now. Five and change. I
0: refuse to believe that.
1: I know it's weird, right?
0: I refuse to believe it.
1: And so it started really because your first record made such waves in my friend group which uh, most of my listeners know music is kind of everything to you know me and and all of the all of the pals and I was just so jealous because all the buds had been going to shows you were doing shows in LA and I had some friends who saw you in New York and you had met a bunch of my closest friends and everyone was becoming friends. And I was working in Chicago and I had missed like three shows and was just pissed about it. I was like, if I miss one more Jack Garrett show, I swear to God. And uh, (laughs) and I was coming home for a weekend and, or maybe, no, it was my hiatus. I was home over the summer. That's what it was. You were playing a show at the Troubadour and Aaron and Lauren and Kenny said, come with us. We're going to go see Jack Garrett. And I was like, thank God. <laughs> and we came to your show and it was the most sort of transcendent, insane experience I'd had as an audience member in a long time. And we all hung out afterwards. And, and I said this on our live, the vibe was just in like, it kind of felt like we'd all known each other forever. And also yeah. you were so adored by, 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 some of my best friends. So, like, my joke is always like, "Oh, you've been pre-screened. Like, you're—I yeah. know you're cool." <laughs> so, you and I decided we were going to go on a friend date the next day, and we went to lunch at Gracias Madre. Uh, <laughs> <'cause>, like, <laughs> yeah, it was was You it? go have good Mexican food in California. I didn't tell you it was vegan. Sorry about that. Um, I totally forgotten
0: about that. I, I just remember, I just remember not having a choice in the matter.
1: No, we were just going.
0: I remember. I remember. Not yeah. Not only not having a choice in going and having breakfast with you, but literally just <laughs> being like, "So where do we go?" And you're like, "Oh no, I know the perfect place. Don't worry about it." I'm like, "No, I need to know the name of it." You're like, "No, nah, just come just the here. Just meet me here. <laughs> just meet me here. It's fine.
1: It'll be great." And and yeah, we just we had the best conversation. That was so fun. And I remember thinking, my friends are smart. They were right, and also <laughs> my hunch was right. I love him, and. You were talking
2: really
1: funny. in a very funny manner. You were talking uh, very much like two of my best friends who lived in Chicago, who became your close friends through our friendship. But my my friend, Michael, who's married to this badass woman named Lydia, and he always used to say to people, yeah, you think I'm cool, but then you're going to meet my wife and just love her more. And oh,
2: yeah,
0: that's li- that's literally what I say about my wife to every <laughs> yeah. single person I meet.
1: That's what you love to say about Sarah. And so you yeah. were telling me, you were like, oh, well, you know, my girlfriend and I, cause she was your girlfriend at the time, we're moving back to Chicago and, uh, you know, she's from, from not too far from there and she's got this job and, and we're going to move back there. And and yeah, I mean, we're friends, but you'll meet Sarah and then you'll love her more than me and you'll never talk to me again. And I was like, I don't really think so. And, and, and this was, is the
0: first time that we've spoken to each other since then. So I was right. Yeah, no, well, you know. You know fire. Fire.
1: You, know. you can't be mad. She's wonderful. I
0: wasn't. I wasn't far. Off.
1: <laughs> I mean, I spoke to you a little bit at your wedding. Give me some. I, you, I, I, you, uh, you called
0: me Steve. It was a very <laughs> awkward situation.
1: I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> but I remember being so. I just thought it was so sweet that you spoke about Sarah the way that Michael speaks about Lydia. And then I said to you, I said, "Oh, well, where are you guys living when you move to Chicago from London?" when you move to America from another country, where are you going yeah. to live? And you said, oh, uh, we're just going to, we don't really know. We're going to probably just like look at some apartments online and sign a lease. <laughs> I, I was like, I'm sorry. That's well, I didn't know. I didn't
0: know to not do that sure. until you said don't do that. So I technically no. it's, I, I would say it's your fault for not having told me sooner.
1: Wonderful. I'm, glad to know. I'm at least I could rectify the thing that I did. So, so dear listeners, and most of you know, I have not a small amount of social anxiety around strangers. So you have to understand how special Jack Garrett is, because I said you can't possibly do that. First of all, you need to come to Chicago and see what neighborhood you want to live in. And secondly, you need to come to Chicago and also understand how neighborhoods work. no and i said i've just moved and i have this apartment and i've got all this space why don't you guys come and stay with me for a few weeks when you arrive and you can look around and see where you want to go you have to go see these buildings in person you can't sign a lease on the internet from a foreign country and as you've said many a time which honestly has been perfect you said the very jack thing which you say which is couldn't
0: possibly. No, I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to be a burden.
1: Couldn't possibly. I said, I couldn't possibly, but you could, it it would be fine. And and so then over the next couple of weeks, every time we spoke, I was like, Hey, how's it going? Oh, you know, fine. We thought we had an Airbnb, but it fell through and uh, we thought we were going to sign a lease, but, but we it turns out this is wrong with this building and and I was like hey Jack I still have a guest room you and Sarah are more than welcome to come no we couldn't oh,
0: I couldn't possibly no I wouldn't how could how could how could I
1: couldn't possibly
0: how could and, I and still look my mother in the eye? That's not that's not the British thing.
2: I which is
1: so weird to me. I'm like I because because I am <laughs> such an Italian grandmother, not even mother. that I'm like, come <laughs> over, let me cook for you. Are you hungry? I know I fed you an hour ago, but are you hungry again now? You know, I I like to host. You uh, no,
0: but you you understand how ridiculous this is, though, right? I know I know we've told this story a couple of times, and I know that I always joke. Literally in the same bit, I think I put the same joke every single time when you're telling the story, which is you understand how ridiculous that is, right? But but also, and to take it seriously for a second, you understand how ridiculous that is, right? We were strangers. We were strangers.
1: Yeah, but not i can't explain it because again i don't like that many people i really don't like i love no, everybody what? but i don't I like know. everybody you know what i mean
0: no i know I, I, and i get i get what you're talking about because i have a similar thing and and the trust was there and i knew it because you would you wouldn't drop it and, and the thing the <laughs> thing the thing that it i knew so that made it like you
2: guys. but
0: but this is the thing is it's like i didn't i remember telling sarah when i got home that i'd like, that A, A, that I'd met you, B, that we'd had breakfast the next day, and C, that you'd invited us to stay with you in Chicago. And it was Sarah who was just like, no, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. No, that's no, that is ridiculous. There is no way that we're going to stay with Sophia. But are you kidding? No. Like, she was very adamant that this is not the thing that was going to happen. And I was equally like, yes, of course that's not happening. We're not
2: mad people.
0: But, but the thing that was amazing is that you kept emailing me, you kept chasing up, you kept asking me, like, the place is there, just use it if you need to. And the, and the thing was, there, there was a point... Where I was very aware of the fact that we we didn't have a place and that our tickets were booked. We were supposed to move to Chicago on X date, but here's the thing: is it's we weren't supposed to. Sarah, my my girlfriend at the time, was supposed to. I was going to mm. be on tour, I so know. we spent we spent about two weeks packing up all of our crap and putting it into boxes and shipping it to Chicago, having no idea where it was going to go. It was just going to be held in like a in storage for a bit but sarah was going to get on a plane and go to chicago and she needed somewhere to stay and we didn't have anywhere to go and i remember <laughs> i remember sending you an email being like Hey, bud. So <laughs> how serious were you about that?
1: I felt so vindicated because, you know, we talked so about it fun. and I remember I'd followed up with you three times. There's like, I need to find that you know, email. again, I need my, to find that my family, as I mentioned, like, you know, my mother's side were this big Italian family and then so much of the rest of my family is Jewish. And there's this adage that when you yeah. want to convert to Judaism, you go to the temple and you knock and the rabbi turns you away three times. Because he wants you to be serious, you know, like right, really, sure, you sure. have to be committed. And so I was like, I'm just gonna follow up with you three times just to let you know that I'm I'm here and I mean it.
0: And I can't believe that worked.
1: Okay. And uh, and then I get and then you go, hey, so um, possibly could I? <laughs> the best part is to to the point, dear listeners. Jack was on tour, so sweet Sarah, who I had never met, but had I had been promised was the best person on the planet, showed up with duffel bags at my apartment from London and was like, "Hey, girl." I and
0: I have I have the email. Oh no! I have the I have the email I have the email where I introduced the two of you on the thirteenth of July, two thousand and fifteen. Wow! Is the day that I introduced uh, introduced the two of you, and it's literally just like. <laughs> yeah, it's just exactly what it is because that's the thing. Is I was like, cool. Um, so I'm gonna hand this over to you guys now because I have to go on tour for the next three months. Like yeah. that's that's what happened. I can't believe I did that to the both of you. But this, e- this email, this email is literally like, Sarah, this is Sophia. Uh, she has so very kindly offered you a place to rest your weary head come the date that we were moving. Uh, Sophia, this is Sarah, the love of my life, and one of the many reasons I'm moving to Chicago. Um. <laughs> And then, yeah, so as I already explained, we had some issues finding a place, sad face, had landlords and flatmates fall through and not keep their word. Thank you so much for opening your home to Sarah and I as we are trying to find our footing. I'll leave the rest of you two. And literally every single... So every email that follows are, um, are small novellas... Written by Sarah and then you in return. It's just like paragraphs and paragraphs of the two, of, of of Sarah being like, "You angel, I can't believe you're doing this for us. This is absolutely unbelievable." Like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then you being like, "Oh, don't be silly. It's fine. You'll be here I'm forever. So don't worry about it."
1: <laughs> well, and honestly, it's, oh, it's truly great. one of the greatest gifts that you gave to either of us because your wife is one of my best friends on the planet. Yeah. We were yeah. we were so immediately attached to the hip. We binged so many netflix shows together we got on like a rotation of our favorite delivery by the time you got home we were like tuesday night we get indian food this is what we're doing <laughs> on friday and you were like hello
0: i was like i'm literally <laughs> here for 72 hours and i have to leave again i i don't know what i, I don't know what day it is let alone oh what food is
1: honestly it was such a fun i don't know what like five months maybe all in all I, that- no
0: i th- i think it might have been all in all but i think it was less i think it was like it might have been like three months and we started to get some places. I think we, we moved, we moved into that, into that apartment. Um, yeah. In Greektown pretty quickly afterwards. That was a really incredible time in, in, so in my life. Like honestly, for both Sarah and me, that was such a, it defines such a beautiful moment, not only in our relationship, but only, but also just the ages that we were, what was that mm. five years ago? So I was, I was 23, 24. um, yeah and and li- like moving to chicago on a whim in the middle of a of an album campaign uh, <laughs> on, like uh, uh, touring around the world i literally i think i i i mean i could find it out but i think i i came to chicago after the first like two weeks mm. sarah was was with you um yeah. and even then i came on a friday and i had to leave on a sunday like mm. i was in and out and you took such good care of us and honestly, forever, forever indebted to the kindness that you showed us at that time, because it was so, so defining for us, like that neighborhood in Chicago, living in America at that time, everything about it, I I look back on it with such fondness. Um, yeah. it, you know, it was, it was a time when I really started to shape who I've ended up becoming and who I'm continuing to become as a, as an adult man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, that's, you know, in part, oh, that to to your friendship and to finding you and that crew of people in LA who I miss dearly right now but still talk to all the time and see every single time I'm back over there like I don't know I I I have found I have found friendships really hard to navigate in my life really really hard I either mm. put too much trust or not enough into people who are either not willing to accept it or willing to accept it and I just can't read it very well mm. and and the thing that the thing I find so baffling about um, being introduced to the group of to the group of friends that I, I now have, um, both in you know in America and in the UK and Europe, and all around the world, is I have finally started to believe that that they like me,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: I know we talk about this a lot, but mm-hmm. like the the level of imposter syndrome that I have felt my entire life with all of the friends that I've had with the career that I have, with the way that I feel about myself, just mm. the, the, the constant whisper that seems to to sit in the back of my mind that just says, everything's better than you and you shouldn't be here. Like mm. it, it, constantly whispering that sort of mantra to me is obviously detrimental to my mental health into the way that I feel about myself. But It's taken me five years and I can officially believe it when I say that, like, we're friends. That You know, that Sarah loves me. That um, that my... I'm trying to think of, like, you know, the people I've hurt in the past, not only will they not hate me forever, but they probably forgot the thing that I'm still obsessing over now. Um, Mm -hmm. They probably forgot about it two days after it happened. Like, I just... Uh, yeah, I'm incredibly thankful for that time. I'm incredibly thankful for the things that have happened to me since.
1: Mm.
0: It's weird being an adult.
1: <laughs> yeah, being an adult is weird. Yeah, and it it's kind of cyclically weird, right? You
2: yeah. yeah
1: yeah you learn a lesson, you have a growth spurt, and then the next one starts, and you're like, God, this is really because,
0: because because the lessons that you learn they get hidden in new experiences. That's mm-hmm. the problem. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing that I find so hard to to pinpoint is like I learned a pretty big lesson a few years ago with a with a really good friend of mine who I was working very closely with and and uh, through a story that I don't enjoy telling because I don't enjoy reliving it I I, I I I lost a friend of mine because I was betrayed by them and it's now and it stayed with me so so prominently that I just. It, it created a, a sense of paranoia in me that I'm just desperately looking to see it everywhere.
2: Mm. And
0: the time when I thought I'd finally gotten through it and I'd gotten through to the other side, I saw it starting to happen with a new friend, like just this weird little moment where I suddenly it shot me back for like four years. Cause, cause the lessons the the lesson I learned was, was, was like specifically for that person in that time. And the lessons I'm going to learn in the future are, are, are the same, but different. It's the bucks. We're back to the bucks. Like, yeah, I, I, I say on my show, I, in the live show that I've been touring over the last few months, that obviously I'm not touring at the moment, but, um, mm. that I also, uh, um, uh, accidentally stole the title from you. <laughs> My 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 work in progress tour. I totally forgot. I remember you getting in touch, being like, "Oh my god, you call it work in progress? That's so great!" And I went, "Oh my god, I'm the worst friend in the world. How could I not have realized that you have a podcast that's titled the same thing?" But no, I went on I a tour that it. I called that I called a work in progress tour. The whole point of it being, I was playing these songs before they were going to be released, uh, like months later, and. And I said this every night that the thing I've learned about my emotional journey is it is cyclical. There are lessons I've learned in the past that I will learn again in the future because I'm going to continue to grow and I'm going to continue to need reminders of just how to behave as a human. I'm going to keep needing to check in with myself. And that's, you know, it's that I'm speaking with self-awareness again. I'm doing the same thing. It's It's, yeah, it's healthy and it's good in, it's healthy and it's good within reason.
1: Well, when we think back on lessons, there's one thing that really stands out to me. And I, I just find it so interesting because again, what we perceive from the outside is so often not what's happening on the inside. Yeah. And not that long after we became roommates <laughs> um, <laughs> in, in 2016, you had a really crazy year. You know, <laughs> you yeah. You you won this insane award. It's the the Brits Critics' Choice Prize, and yeah. you won the BBC Sounds Sound of, uh, yeah. of 2016. These were these were
0: yeah. They're pretty. They're pretty. Huge prestigious. things.
1: Can you explain to the audience what, what those are, so that we can then yeah. talk about how they felt.
0: Well, to put, it, to put it into a context that is really, that is, that is way simpler to understand. So the Bricks Critics' Choice Award and the BBC Sound Poll are two accolades that are handed out to, they're handed out to a, a new artist, musician who's um, starting to, you know, do things. In the history of those two awards, so I can, I can put it like this. This explains it probably in the best and clearest and most concise way. In the history of those two awards being handed out, there are only, I think, four artists who have won both of them in the same year. Um, Adele won both of them in the same year. Uh, Sam Smith won both of them in the same year. Ellie Goulding won both of them in the same year. And I won both of them in the same year. Um, that puts, yeah, I mean, it it puts into context the the relevance of those awards when you say those four names and side by side. It all, sorry, four names, three names side by side. It also puts into context um, where I sit amongst that um, and what that possibly could have uh, led me to think about myself in. Uh, yeah, it, as as I, yeah, it, as I kind of tried to process what the fuck was going on. Um, Yeah, it was a weird, a weird year. It's, you know, they're awards you don't explicitly ask for. You kind of get handed them. And they're incredible awards that create a ridiculous kind of opportunity. They don't, you know, they don't come without problematic and systemic issues, though. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, yeah, yeah.
1: And that's what I'm curious about, because to your point, when you win an award or awards like those, and, and let's use Adele for comparison, everyone assumes like, oh, now your life is a rocket ship. You're probably worth a gajillion dollars and everything is different. And you're like, hey, hi, still trying to put out a record and um, figure out how to be an adult. And everything doesn't just get solved. It's complicated. There's, there's then an immense amount of pressure. There's a lot of eyes on you. I'm curious, rather than what people were assuming it felt like, I'm curious what it felt like. And, and was that a time, do you think that, that perhaps the anxiety voice got louder?
0: I mean it, it definitely did get louder it was it was unavoidable i was so out of control of it as well i didn't i didn't know how to see it coming the voice i mean but but it disguised itself in the voices of the other opinions about me that i was open to at the time or that i was aware of at the time obviously initially receiving those awards created such an immeasurable elation in my mood like it, these mm these career defining things. Um, I was aware that, you know, it it didn't mean I could start, it didn't mean I could start taking my foot off the gas. It meant I start, I I would have to put it down harder. I'd have to work harder to really prove myself as being Mm -hmm. worthy of these awards. that's the other thing as well, is those two awards are handed out to artists to be eligible for the brits critics choice for example at that time i I wasn't allowed to have released an album so i i Mm. you know and that's my biggest disagree with it disagreement with it at the time was that it was an award that was awarding it was awarding potential rather than actually awarding anything which Mm. i found very conflicting very confusing at the time but you know still incredibly thankful for it still had to go on tv and accept the thing and, and and be very thankful for it but i did have questions and issues and i did not have at the time a immediate support structure in place to help support my my issues and uh, mm. and, and and my my questions i i didn't i i had a support team of people but they were being kept at bay by the person I referenced earlier, someone who was very close to me who who I ended up um I ended up feeling very betray- uh, betrayed by the awards were presented as exactly what you said, the surefire things, you know, put them into context with everyone else, especially at a time when i was I was making music that people were finding hard to pigeonhole, so I ended up becoming the artist who was hard to pigeonhole, but you know uh-huh. rather than rather that than than being you know. Uh, than being Miss uh as like an artist that I was in. I liked that it was a challenge to kind of explain the music that I made because on one hand it was pop, but on the other hand it was, you know, alternative R&B, but on the other hand it was, you know, bedroom producer music or, um, mm. but then, you know, there's an unavoidable uh, songwriter, singer-songwriter um, string to that bow. I I don't know. I liked watching people struggle to figure out what I was doing. And then these awards came along and suddenly that was it. I was mm. the guy who won these awards, you know? and the the reason why i think me winning those awards at that time is is so fascinating is because the industry especially in the uk at that time was in disarray like the music industry was 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 so was so on the back foot about what was happening with streaming and what was happening with spotify it was it was not thinking about the future of music it was it was trying to from what I experienced of it and from what I could see, it was trying to solidify like its future as a business rather than the future of it as like a creative thing. It, it mm. me being at that time, a symbol of the future of the, of the sound of music. Psh, no, that's not what like the industry as a whole was concerned about. It was concerned about keeping, keeping the business afloat. So I don't know. And then on top of that, added to the fact that I was just making music that, that, that wasn't the sound of 2016. <laughs> like there weren't people making the kinds of music that I was making. I don't think. Um, mm. uh, not, not to then, yeah, not to imply that my music was better or worse. It was just different. I don't know. I just kind of, I still have these questions today. The one thing that I've really learned and the one thing I've really kind of come to accept is, is the questions are okay and I might have them forever. I don't think I'm going to get answers for them. I don't think anyone has the answers for them. Mm. I think, Yeah.
1: I mean, I think that that's fair. I think that getting comfortable with certain questions is fair. And I also think that for so many of us, when you have these run-ins occasionally with these big moments of success, when you're young and perhaps not fully ready, sometimes something gets in the way. Sometimes the conversation around streaming gets in the way. Sometimes, you know, I... I signed this great big production deal and then the studio that I was supposed to be producing with went into a merger yeah. and they were like number crunching and firing executives for 9 months while I was developing content and I managed to actually develop a bunch of stuff I really love that I don't think I was actually ready to take out yet right i made i made something that i really care about but i I was trying to I was trying to maintain a pace I was used to which actually wasn't good for me and I needed to slow down and I think that whether it's your experience with the streaming timing or my experience with the timing of a corporate merger or whatever sometimes something forces you to slow down so you can look in and I think for a lot of us who are used to overachieving and who are kind of obsessed with doing a lot we have to be forced to slow down sure and and i don't know maybe that's me trying yeah. to put purpose on something where it doesn't exist but i also am a pretty big believer in the fact that purpose is around and yeah i i think that i think that there are these big indicators you know i it's funny to like do prep work for an interview with one of your best friends but i was <laughs> i was really like i was so struck by around that time you you, you told the bbc that when you put your first album out, you stopped dancing in public, that it, something happened and you stopped feeling comfortable in your body. And I, I, I think about that, if I may, as like almost a sign or an indicator that, that there was something that you needed to look at or, or process for yourself or some space that you required. And I don't know, sometimes the way that we get space is frustrating, but it matters. So I, whether it's whether it's talking about a realization like that like how you've worked on that feeling or it's talking about the fact that while you were in this really up and down time you you recorded a whole album and then decided to scrap it like there there were things that were happening that you were working to understand and i i wonder when you when you think about that recording and throwing an album away feeling disjointed with your own or disconnected to your own body how do you think about that now? You know, what kind of a break did you need? What, what do you understand about the lesson maybe in the timing in hindsight?
0: In hindsight, sorry, excuse me. In hindsight, the, the, the issue that I had with, with, with something slowing me down at that early in my career, like for example, specifically those, those awards is I was just getting started. Like, and I think that's, that's the thing that can, that's, That's the thing that I think confused me the most is I was just getting started and I was just about to really do something like to grow in a way that I don't know it's 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 dangerous to go back and think of it hypothetically simply because that timeline doesn't exist for me you know and to think about it in a way in that goes to the question it goes back to the question you're proposing is it's led me to a version of myself that I feel way more assured about. I don't I don't know who I would have been if I'd been unchallenged then. Not that I would have been completely unchallenged because you know um but you know uh, cri- uh, music uh, journalists and critics exist and they're there to challenge work. That's the, the you know it's a huge part of what they do and it's a hugely important part of of the music that gets made and released. But I was I was challenged by exactly what you're saying like some sort of I don't know like some sort of faithfulness and it and it really hurt and it really confused me and it it really destroyed my it destroyed any semblance of confidence i had in myself and i was very confident i am a very confident person i think i i enjoy being a confident person it means that when i really love something that i've done i really love it and and that's such an amazing feeling to have as a as as someone who creates music from silence is to sit back and look at the space that you filled and to go, that's worth being there. Like that truly that song is brilliant. And I think the thing that the thing that I've been able to really the thing I've been able to admire about myself is that I'm learning to engage with that part of myself more and making this record, making this record was so fucking hard because I started it with no confidence. I started making this record with zero confidence. I was just bleeding songs. And that was really hard to do because it meant every song that I made, I thought was crap. I, by that point, I'd already written those eight songs that I trashed. You know, I'd I'd already written the the bulk of an album. This would have been two years ago. I had I had about eight songs, and they were just they were garbage. I did not like them, and I and and I go I go back to them now. <laughs> well, no, no, I know, but but yeah. because. Because so i've and, and I've ended up actually using some of them on the album but in different forms so like there's lots of outros or middle eight or verse ideas from those songs that ended up getting making their way onto the record um for example Mender Heart, which is a song that that, that I, I just put out that came out on volume two of, of Love Death and Dancing the outro of Mender Heart was from a song that I scrapped and I I needed an outro for that song and my brain went literally just copy and paste that from, from that place and it might work. And I copied and pasted it and had to do some like magic edit bits and it just worked perfectly. And I, I built on top of that. So I, so I know that like, I know that there are cyclical versions of myself in the future and in the past that are constantly aiding the creativity of what I'm doing now. You know, like there's, there's melodies I've written that I wrote for songs that I haven't finished because they weren't for that song. They're for another song. Instead there's, there's songs I've not written yet. The melodies I'm writing now are going to be suited for, you know, I, 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 in the, in the interim between phase and love, death and dancing, I, 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 I I disassembled myself because I needed to see what was, what, what felt broken. Something was broken and I needed to go in and see what it was. And, and, and in disassembling myself, there wasn't an obvious crack anywhere. There were just old weary parts. That's what made me was just like tiredness and, and luggishness and, 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 and a, and a, An unwillingness to to work cohesively as like a finely tuned mechanism, and when I put myself back together, rather than so like so to disassemble myself and see that nothing was broken, instead it just that's just what I was. Like yeah, I could I shine some stuff and um uh, and oiled pieces and sure, but when I put myself together again, like there's no there was no certification there was no reason to believe that putting myself back together again was going to mean that I would then work fine and what I ended up doing is I was building myself back up by going to therapy by learning to talk to myself better by doing um by, by doing research into my actual like mental health that's I, I I thought I was building myself up together what I was actually doing was breaking the parts you know, like I, I disassembled this version of myself, thought I was putting it back together again, but actually I was just, I was breaking the parts that were in front of me. And that's, that's when I, that's when I wrote those songs, that, that, that was me attempting to build myself up again, you know, and, and there's, and these songs that may get released at some point, if I am able to turn them into things I'm proud of, but like, they represent me trying so desperately to be someone I wasn't, which is someone who I was when I made phase and I was, I was young and I was naive and I could afford to make the mistakes that I made. I don't know why in this interim period, I was so desperate to go back to that version of myself because it was the only certain version of myself that I could see because I couldn't see who I am now yet, you know, and and who I am now is, is way stronger because who I am now is able to put my hand up and say, I'm full of broken pieces. Mm Hmm. You know, and that's what I'm writing about. That's what I want to write about. That's the person I want to be. I want to admit to that. And I want to know that those pieces are there. I don't want to try and fix them unless they need fixing. I also don't expect myself to be able to live with them forever.
1: Right. Well, and, and that's one of the things that excites me about, you know, the version of this conversation that we had on that live a few weeks ago that so many people reached out and said, you know, thank you guys for talking about mental health in the way that you did. And, and the conversations we have offline a lot, which, which thematically in my mind right now, I'm realizing really, in, especially in the last year, center so much on that idea of simultaneous truths, how you can be at once hyper self-critical and also confident, how you can understand that you're an artist and also question whether you make anything of merit, how, how to your earlier point there can be all of these unanswered questions that might actually be unanswerable. And perhaps the exploration and the artistry comes from pondering them and seeing what answers come up day by day, but understanding that those questions will always be there. Is, Is there freedom in understanding that you don't solve the puzzle of yourself?
2: Yeah.
0: That's, that's a huge, that, that exact premise has been a huge part of my emotional awakening in, in, in learning that like, I, 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 I say this a lot in, in interviews that I'm doing at the moment, because I like, not that I, I, I talk in sound bites but I just, I just believe in the things that I, I'm saying at the moment. And one of the things I'm saying a lot is I refuse to believe that my emotions are problems that need solving no one's ever no one's ever asked me to question my happiness no one's ever asked me to 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 ask myself or to challenge my my positive emotions and yet i'm constantly asked to do that about my my depression and my sadness and my argument is f- fuck that my emotions aren't problems that need fixing i am who i am and if what i am is a is a mess of broken parts surely in being able to see that that's what I could be is a step in the right direction of being able to accept that. That's what I am to know that there's room for improvement to not, to not, to not accept that as it as, as okay, cool. And therefore the world should accept me. No, I think there are things about myself that need improvement. Of course there are. I'm, I'm, you know, human.
2: human. Um,
0: Perfection doesn't exist. Uh, as, as as yeah as as much as I can't tell myself that when I'm writing a song or producing a piece of music, it just doesn't, and it never will. the The act of asking the question, "Am I okay?" is is it? I it, I know it's, it sounds so it sounds so like abstract, but but like but it's so it's so relevant to what to what this album is about, to what the language around this album is about. We just announced this new project that's up on my website called, um, called a call and response. It's this thing that my team and me have been working on for months and we finally got it together. But what it is, is a place on my website where uh, anyone can go and, um, submit either a call into the ether or respond to somebody else's call the premise of it there's a little there's a little biog that goes with it that just explains about how it's relevant to my album and how it's relevant to love death and dancing and, and the way i've been feeling and the the emotional um enlightenment that i feel like i've achieved but the premise of it is that the act of asking a question is in itself an act of love of, of self-love to ask something that doesn't necessarily need an answer but to know that it just needs asking in the first place the opening lyric of time why is it not enough to be fine? I never answer that question. It's not there to be answered. It's just there to be proposed. Like, why is it not enough to be fine? I don't want you to answer that. I don't want myself to answer that. I just need to know I can ask that question because, God, I think about it all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, th- th- that whole song is filled with those kinds of I- ideas and sentiments and one liners. You know, afraid to look inside yourself, afraid you'll find that an hourglass is just a glass with sand inside. It's my favorite lyric on the album and it doesn't need an answer it proposes a thought it it, it doesn't want a response it just needs to exist and breathe you can respond to it that's the beautiful thing about it it's an idea you can respond to it in any way that you want but it's not asking you to do that and i i need to learn to do that for myself i need to learn to not expect an answer from myself if i think i am a difficult question at times Mm. how
1: do you think you've because there's something as both a, a fan of your music and as your friend, there's something so beautiful about witnessing where you are in this period and also what you're making. And it isn't lost on me that there was a time where you didn't feel comfortable in your body and, and in the larger context of mental health, maybe in your brain. And here we are celebrating your new record, which is aptly titled Love, Death, and Dancing.
2: Yeah, 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 and,
1: yeah. And you put out this beautiful series of videos. It's a it's a partially it's partially a visual album, and it's you dancing. You <laughs> you quite literally have gotten back in your body. How how did you know you were ready to kind of come home to yourself? Why, why? Why the series of of videos that Uh, center around dance?
0: I I didn't I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know that there wasn't ever a point where it was like, cool, I'm ready. Let's go dancing. There was just a point where I, I, I knew that it was going to be an important part of the message. Like I, I, I knew roughly what I wanted the album to be called. I knew what it was about. I also just knew how it made me feel. Like these songs make me want to move in ways that I haven't moved before. And the dancing came from the video concept. The video concept was this, it was, you know, what was widely regarded as a bad idea, but it was an idea that I had, which was I'm going to be in front of a camera and I'm going to dance for every single song. That's how it started. And I, and I got, um, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I uh, coaxed my friend uh, Tom Clarkson um, who's an incredible writer and, and director? Someone I've worked with a lot. Um, someone you've hung out with in Chicago before when he came to visit us. Big tall, freaking love, Tom, Tom. love that man. Um, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I lured him into helping me do it, um, and he did so. And the first, the first questions and the questions that we kept asking ourselves were okay, why? Again, me being a stickler for needing to know that the details mean something. Why why dancing? Why just me? Like a big one of the first big arguments we had actually over the creative of it was he wanted more people on camera and I refused. I was like, no, this has to be me. This has to just be me. And it's not because I want to prove it to myself, but it's because that's what this whole album is about. This uh, this album is about me. It's not about anyone else. I, I've not written this for anyone else. I've written this purely for myself. You know, the soundbite I have about that is uh, I've satisfied a hundred percent of my target audience with this album because it's me. <laughs> I love this album. And 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 I want to show that in everything that I do. I don't want there to be another face on this, not because I want to take all the spotlight, but because this is to the best of my ability, an accurate depiction of exactly who I am and how I feel. There should not be anyone else's face on it. Right.
1: And when you've done the hard work of going in and excavating and breaking and putting back together, that that's a reclamation of self.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: it's not lost on me that you stopped dancing and with this record and this clearer sensibility about who you are how your brain works what your emotional life looks like you've come back into your body that that you've begun to dance again that you've you've owned a space again it's it's very metaphorical but it's also quite literal
0: yeah yeah and and done and done so in the video through through a characterized version caricaturized caricaturized sure sure version of myself just like yeah like the 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 story of the video like so what we have is we we ended up out of the 12 songs on the album we picked eight and we've made we've made videos for them we filmed them all in four days which was not fun but it was fun um and each video is me moving Uh, and presenting the song in a different way Um, so they're all little vignettes that they stand on their own but we're also releasing them one uh, releasing them as like a long-form film where they can play one after the other and for those of you watching at home you'll notice that the beginning shot and the last shot of each video is the respectively last shot and then beginning shot of the song before and after and uh, because the because the story that I was trying to create is one that also has found its way into the album which is just my emotional journey it's my story of the last few years mm. it's it's you know the, the the video is the story about an an arrogant version of myself who is obsessed with performing to a camera and the camera begins to the camera begins to sway and it begins to move away and it begins to get bored of its subject which is me and I in a in a desperate bid to um, win back its favour you know thrust myself and throw my body around just to get it to look at me and it does so begrudgingly it doesn't want to but the film follows me as I begin to break down the reasons why I want to do that who's behind the camera why am I so obsessed with performing to it is it me behind the camera am I just obsessed about accepting myself why do I feel the need to be the only person in front of the camera on my own and ultimately it leads to a moment in, in the long film where I dance, but not for the camera. And that's the moment when the camera decides to want to see me again is because I'm purely doing it for myself. Um, but my favourite bit about the video is that it ends with me realising that the cameras come back. And so I start to perform to it again and so, and, and we end the film with the very first shot of the very first song, indicating that the whole thing is just cyclical in the way that we've been talking about. That this, that realisation I have for myself of like needing the camera, but do I need the camera? Okay, I don't need the camera, but now the camera's following me again, so I might as well turn around and need the camera, but now I need the camera, but do I need the camera? Like, that it. cyclical way of thinking, I, I wanted to represent that as best I could because it's something I've been so obsessed about over the last few years. And it's something that's so, it, it, that's one of the core messages that that lives within every single song on this album. Me dancing in front of a camera was, I mean, yeah, I wanted to prove to myself I could do it because like I said, when, when things started going well for me in 2016, I lost my confidence in a lot of what I did and one of those things was dancing in public. And I used to love doing that. Me and my wife fell in love with each other because we would do dance-offs uh, at 3 a.m. At, um, at the Notting Hill Arts Club and i just stopped doing that one day and that was the saddest thing to see her not know why that was and for me to not really know why that was either and it was just because i didn't love myself enough to feel like i could do that i still don't know if i'm there i did it in front of a camera because i had to but <laughs> i don't know we'll see just put on uh put on like i love you and uh get me drunk enough and then we'll see what happens <laughs>
1: You know, I'm always down for the dance party. No, I know. <laughs> but I, I get it. It's it is an interesting thing because hearing you talk about that, I can trace when I've been going through something uncomfortable and kind of lost my will or, or my ease mm. in movement. Like yeah. where suddenly I don't feel like I I don't feel like my body is mine anymore. Yeah. And and yeah, I've I've noticed it. It forces you to get
0: hypersensitive as well. Like you mm-hmm. notice the difference and then suddenly you go, well, hang on, why is that there? And it makes you hyper aware, hypersensitive of it, which then numbs you to more of it. It's so strange. It's such yeah. a weird
1: thing. It is really interesting. How, because obviously there's there's an incredible amount of fodder for art in exploration of self, in in really getting responsible with you know, your mental health in, in looking yourself in the eye in these ways that I think so many of us need to do. How does technology play a role in this stuff for you? Because I I think about how intensely tech has changed. I think about, you know, going back to the beginning of this conversation, us talking about how we can stay in touch, which we have through our whole friendship on, on FaceTime. You know, we can we can have this conversation in two different countries during a pandemic, uh, and and look at each other the whole time, That's which is insane, isn't so it? insane and cool. But I wonder, you know, I I know you made phase on your MacBook using Logic, and and now we're getting to see these Instagram live shows and these Facebook live shows that you're doing, and we, we get to be in your studio with you, which has all the bells and whistles and gadgets. Yeah, what what is what is the role of of technology and how it's changing? How how is that working with your music and impacting what you're making?
0: I think, like technology and music has always been. I, I mean, I'm always on. I'm always on side with it. I think. I think like. I taught myself to produce music because I didn't know there was any other way of doing it. So, like, I got, I, I, I remember getting my first laptop and and trying to make songs on it, not knowing that, uh, not knowing that, like, I guess the done thing is that you would have a producer that would do that in 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 a more like classic way of making a record, for example. But I was, you know, seventeen, eighteen, and and just doing it in my bedroom. I, I always. I find technology to be such a useful tool. I also am guilty of using it as a crux a lot. Sorry, I'm (laughs) guilty of using it as a crutch a lot of the time. Um, I I rest on it too much, and I and I and I I rely on the same things over and over again to kind of do the same thing over and over and again. But the thing that it's enabled me to be able to do is it's and and the reason why I don't think I'll ever look back and do this in any other way is. I, I never consciously made myself become the quote one person band right I never I never sat down and went oh this is this is the right thing to do I I just did it because I didn't know I, there was any other way to do it mm. uh, and the only way I was able to do that is because I had the technology that enabled me the tools to be able to do that you know making a song and this goes back to what we were saying at the beginning with learning all the, the, the different instruments that i that i can play it it makes me be able to think about how to arrange and produce a piece of music from the from the point of view of The version of myself that plays the bass, from the version of myself that plays the keyboard, from the version of myself that plays the trombone. You know, I'm able to think at music production from those different points of view. And I can also sit behind a laptop and and engineer and program something myself. I, I, I need it to be able to make the music I'm currently making. You know, I need the laptop, and I need the synthesizers I've got around me, and I need all the plugins that I use. That's the thing, as well, is that like I've got all these toys in here, but half of the stuff I use is in this laptop that I'm talking to you on right now. Like half the instruments and, and the and the and the effects and everything, it's in the box. Um, you know, depending on who you ask, that's blasphemous. Uh, depending on who else you ask, it's a godsend. I, the only thing that I know. The only thing I know to be true, though, is what I need is something that creates speed speed is so important it's so important i can't i can't waste time plugging something in if i've got an idea now i need to know that i can load something up whether it be a patch on a plugin or just plug in a keyboard that i know is going to give me the sound i need i need to know i can do it quickly while i'm still riding the wave of that idea i can't spend what i have found to be something that is detrimental to my creative process when i'm in other studios i can't spend 20 minutes to set something up Mm Mm-mm. Because the idea's gone, the moment's gone. I can't hang on to something for that long. So it's really important to me that I have the technology available to be able to make the music I make quickly and efficiently. That being said, I try not to rely on it too much. Like I said, I, if I feel like I'm getting too dependent on something, I'll switch everything up and 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 do something completely different. Like I've got I've got two setups running at the moment in my studio. I've got my like songwriting setup, which is you know my laptop with my with all my plugins, and I've got this very elaborate um, I/O system that enables me to be able to play any synth that I can currently see at any point, depending on whether I've got it armed or not, you know, that's great for creating stuff and making songs. I've also got to the side on a table I'm looking at over there, um, an analog system, something that's not plugged into a computer. I've just got a few synths and a sequencer set up um, that I have to program manually myself. Completely different way to looking at and making music. Not something I have ever done before in my life. I've just, you know, I've, I've got a couple of synths that allow me to do stuff like that. I'm, I'm a bit of a sponge when it comes to music and I learn very quickly. And luckily I'm still doing that even as I'm getting older. I, I haven't kind of lost that, that, that ability yet. So I'm still just trying to rely on that. But the beautiful thing about technology and the age that we're living in is we have, we have decades of, of technology that, that, that acts as a predecessor to us. So what I'm really enjoying doing at the moment is finding technology that was used 30 years ago cuz cuz my body my brain is not built to look at that technology and use it instinctively i've grown up with screens all of my life i've grown up with phones in my hand you know and here i am going back looking uh like when i was making when i was making this record i was making it with um i was making some of it with a producer called Jack Knife Lee who's based out in california based out in la um who well, is based out in topanga and he has the largest synth collection i've ever seen in my entire life the most amazing thing about working with him was I was using, te- I'm, I'm using technology that was built 40 years ago, used that was built 50 years ago, uh, you know, and I'm a 20, I was at the time 26, 27, you know, it's almost twice as old as I am. But the instinctive, like my hands knew where to go, they knew what to do, they knew how to touch it, they knew what to turn to make the noises that I needed to make, like it, the technology and and music for me for the music i make is just it, they they blend so beautifully into each other i've made things before though where i've depended on it on it too much and i can hear it but this this album i've not done that i don't think i've done it i really hope i haven't done it <laughs> no this album feels it feels a lot more organically made i i was able to use the instruments i needed but again none of it got played if i wasn't playing it you know that and that's my that's my rule
1: well I love it. Why, why release the album in volumes rather than just as a record?
0: Oh, well this actually, this, this lends itself quite nicely to the technology conversation. It's purely from a standpoint of that's how people consume music. I, there are two ways in which you can listen to the album once it's available on June 12th. Um, The two ways being in the four volumes, uh, those four, four volumes are only going to exist online they're only going to exist on on um, like streaming platforms the other version is the physical version the other version is on cd and vinyl and cassette or whatever and, and download and that version has a completely different playlist so it's not just like volume one followed by two three and four it's track one to track 12 completely different playlists in a completely different order the purpose behind that for me was because the listening experience is and should be different and the technology now allows you to be able to to facilitate that experience to be different, to intend for that experience to be different. When I'm streaming music, I'm in a completely different headspace to when I'm listening to vinyl. And I am a consumer that does both, right? So I'm not trying to target the same wallet twice, but I am trying to target the same consumer twice by offering the the same album, just in a different format. When I'm streaming music, I am playlisting it, I'm using it in bite-sized chunks. Um, My brain is just, it's thinking differently, It's, it's, it's talking to itself differently. When I'm listening to a vinyl, I'm ritualizing the music that I'm listening to. I'm taking the I'm taking the vinyl out of the sleeve. I'm placing it gently onto my uh, onto my turntable. Like I I'm physically engaging with a with with a memory I'm creating for myself and it's being soundtracked by literally the music I'm listening to. It's a completely different environment. There is nothing that suggests I should be listening to Uh, the music i'm listening to in exactly the same playlist like it's such a it's such an easy way to create a different mood the songs are exactly the same it's still 12 of them it's just two completely different environments it's two completely different moods um yeah it was a weird it was an idea i had a few years ago before i'd written the album I, i asked um i asked my management if that was something that had been done before and we couldn't think of any examples of when it had been done. We also couldn't think of any reason not to do it. It just seemed to, be, it seemed to be a smart, interesting way as well to just ignite some sort of discussion. Like, I'm excited to see how people prefer to listen to the album. Do they listen to the vinyl version? Do they listen to that track listing, which is my personal favourite, track one through track 12? Or do they listen to it in the volumes? Which volume is their favourite? I'm interested to see what people think about that. I like the discussion that it could create.
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, I'm obviously geeked on Volume One because "Time" is one of my favorite songs of yeah. all time now, yeah. which is cool. Aww, stop it! Stop it's it. very true. It God, it just makes me so happy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it'll it'll be very cool to find out how how people are consuming it and what those things mean to them. You yeah. know, you mentioned that you have 100% approval rating from your intended audience because your intended audience is you. But something that I find about art is that the more specific it is, the more relatable it feels to its audience. And See, this
0: this has been surprising for me because I thought the opposite was true for so long.
1: No, because you you wrote an album for you, but I feel like you wrote an album for me. Yeah. And I'm sure there are so many people who are fans of your music who are who are listening to this record thinking it's like he read my journal
0: it's what it's a lot like... of people have been saying yeah a lot mm-hmm. of people have been saying that they that that they've always enjoyed my music but they've not been able to access it in such a personal way that they have than the way that they've been able to this time around and it's really funny because that was a conscious choice of mine the first album i did want to I, I wanted to leave a level of ambiguity in the lyrics i didn't want to be too specific because i because what i thought i was actually doing was opening a door of exe- uh, of accessibility you know if i keep my lyrics relatively vague more people are going to be able to apply them to their situations no the exact opposite (laughs) was true instead the minute i started being way overly specific about my personal my personal stories and 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 also like um henry and i uh henry who i co-wrote the lyrics on the album with we made the we made the choice to be as literal as we could we did not want to use unnecessary metaphor we had to be completely brutally honest if we were going to put metaphor in the lyric it really had to deserve to be there and 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 even writing with with that sort of scrutiny i i did i you know i was never concerned that people weren't going to enjoy the music but i was kind of concerned if people were going to be able to relate and it just seems that my concerns were completely unwarranted because like you said people have just responded to this in such in such a powerful way in 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 such a way as well especially with, with with what's happening right now the 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 influx of messages that i've received from people who have said you know now with everything that's happening these songs are hitting me in such a way i didn't you know exactly like you said it's like you've taken writings from my journal and written them into a song now obviously i've never meant to do that and i take no credit for doing that because i wrote a song for me Mm -hmm. but the fact that people have been able to live in these songs so deeply and love them in such like personal ways it you know they're not mine anymore the songs are mine when i listen to them but they're not when someone else does they're theirs they're yours um that's the i don't know i think i think i believe in that in music i believe in that right now i might not in the future but like i don't know it seems to be it seems to be worth believing in because it seems to be the truth mm. yeah i
1: love it i'm gonna ask you my favorite question now Uh oh. <laughs> right. so since we both have shows that are works in progress I'm curious when you think about the phrase, and, and obviously it's one that resonates deeply with you, what feels like a work in progress in your life right now?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: right, right now, I am, yeah, going back to the, the um, cyclicalness of emotional journeys and, and learning lessons right now the right now I'm really having to take some time to deal with my Mm. patients. I don't know whether it is, I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the pandemic. I don't think it's the isolation or the quarantine. I think it's, I think there are, there are things in my head that I, I'm not taking as seriously as the message that I'm promoting about my album, to put it very frankly. And you know, it's, it's, um, it's easy to say, and it's more difficult to do. Mm. And and the, the you know the work in progress right now in my life is is still as I know it will be forever. Me and how I feel about myself, and it's funny. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I was feeling really good about myself, and just the last couple of days, it's been getting really tough again. Knowing you know the, the work in progress is 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 still convincing myself to commit to what i'm doing because it really is worth it even though i can't feel the fulfillment of that worth immediately you know that i'm banking that worth until later i'll feel it later and i just have to convince myself that that's true i have to connect to that future and work for it now and that's you know that's proving to be a challenge it's proving to be really hard but i'm working at it that's the point you know Today was really tough. Doing that radio session was really tough. Um, Not because of, you know, the person who was interviewing me. The questions were amazing. I got to talk about some really wonderful stuff like I'm talking about it with you. But, you know, doing a show in front of absolutely no one and having zero understanding as to whether people are, are entertained or not, because that's part of my job as well. I'm an entertainer. I want people to have fun when they're watching me. I it was really tough and it did seem to be it wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back, but my back literally hurts. Like my shoulder, my back i'm not sleeping well, kind of thing, like I don't know I think there's I'm, I'm not I'm not sharing enough i'm keeping myself quiet i'm doing the things that I do when i'm about to begin to spiral and i'm and I'm seeing them happen
1: mm. but do you think that that's part of the growth is that when you can identify it in real time rather than fall down the rabbit hole, you can
0: yeah.
1: you can start to walk walk a different path
0: that is the hope but again Mm -hmm. it takes hard work to be able to commit to doing something like that you know you have to the i i i i I still do sometimes but used to have a really debilitating fear of flying and uh, i i took a course that was a flying with confidence course that british airways offer and absolutely sorted me out um it was incredible but one of the things they teach you to do is to look for those early signs of panic you know it could be triggered by just being in an airport it could be triggered by specifically going through you know Uh, security or or it could come as late as sitting on the plane for me it's it's being in the plane and it's turbulence those are the things that start to set off my my panic brain and what they teach you to do is they teach you to travel with an with an elastic band around your wrist and they teach you to to notice those signs and what they translate it to you as is your body is going into fight or flight mode but it can't see a threat so you have to give it a threat and the threat is to snap the elastic band on your wrist.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And what it does is it directs your fear to a source of pain and it allows you to just close your eyes, take 10 deep breaths. It allows your brain the, the to slow down and, 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 you know, offer yourself just a little bit of time to be able to gather yourself by directing the fear to a, to a significant place. You know, But it doesn't work if you're not willing to snap yourself. It doesn't work if you're not w- if you're not going to cause yourself that little amount of pain first just to be able to direct some of that fear. And that's the thing I'm worried about with myself at the moment is I can see, I can notice the panic. I'm going into fight or flight mode. I don't know if I'm brave enough right now to be able to pull the elastic band. I don't know. I'm also, you know, there are things I could be doing to help myself do that. And I know I'm not doing them. So that's the first challenge is, is kind of... Doing them, doing the work. Mm-hmm. The fulfillment will come later. Doing the work now.
1: I think sometimes the longest distance on Earth is the, you know, twelve or fourteen inches between the head and the heart, between what we intellectually know versus what we emotionally or or psychically put into practice. Yeah, you know how to regulate yourself, you know how to identify and 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 in all my own ways, so do I. But sometimes just changing the habit or or taking that first step feels (laughs) it's I mean it's it's paralyzing. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. But that's where I think that things like this, whether we're having this conversation offline between just me and you or having it in a way that our listeners who've joined us today can learn from it identifying with your people who can say hey i see you and and even though you might feel scared i know you're capable of this i i know i i see your progress i see the yeah. work you've done i'm so proud of you you know i i will always be a person who is ready to do that for you and i'm beyond grateful that you have since you walked into my life and moved into my apartment, been a person who has been willing and able to do that for me. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think I think sometimes, sometimes it's not snapping a band; it's leaning on on your community who will snap it for you.
0: Yeah, that's fair. That's incredibly fair. So I'm not. I'm not very good at doing that. So
1: see me. See me just. It's <laughs> <because of me laughs> like you snapping the in? band. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. I'm better. Hey. Hey. (laughs) That's really Um, funny. Well, thank you. And I love
0: you. Oh, thank you. I love you too. This has been really fun. This has been really, really enjoyable.
1: This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik, our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki, and our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.